This episode is sponsored by ContentFind, a premium video editing and content repurposing service for busy content creators, influencers, brands, podcasters, YouTubers, and marketers. ContentFi provides unlimited end-to-end editing and repurposing services to help you get your video and audio content edited and repurposed quickly, easily, and reliably. Join other busy content creators, founders, brands, and marketers who now spend even more time creating while they take care of the rest. You no longer need to worry about spending hours editing anymore. Just create content, build your audience, and grow your business. If you're a content creator looking to save time and money, or looking to outsource your content marketing team, get your first free video edited now at contentfi.co. If you'd like to sponsor the SaaS District podcast, or recommend any guests that you think would be valuable to be on the show, visit horizoncapital.com slash SaaS dash podcast today. Thanks again, folks. Hello, hello, everyone. This is your host, Akhil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District. Guys, remember that we've been diversifying our content and you, as the listeners of this show, have been asking for it. Going forward, we'll be segmenting the show into three different categories. We have the investor episodes where we talk with top leaders in the VC and investment space. We have the pitch episode where we talk about founders ready to seek funding and want to pitch their ideas. And we have the classic episodes in blue where we talk with top leaders, founders, and marketers in the SaaS industry. So just look for those colors in the episode cover. Green is for the investor episodes, orange is for the pitch, and blue is for the other episodes. So thank you guys so much for the feedback. And please let us know what you guys think. We're constantly looking to improve, make it more better, and deliver uh, content for you guys. So uh, let's get into today's episode. In today's episode, we'll be talking about an investor's perspective on today's SaaS market and six core principles that every startup founder should know. Today, we have our guest, Joseph Pizzolata, joining us. JP, uh, for short, he's an entrepreneur and tech investor at Felix Capital with over 10 years of experience investing, advising, and operating companies across Europe and North America. He was previously at Vitruvian Partners, a global growth equity fund where he specialized in B2B software, fintech, and consumer internet businesses. He was involved in a number of high-profile investments across countries, including Pindrop, Ebury, Stanfish, and Farfetch. So welcome, JP. Super excited to have you on SAS District Show today. Thanks so much, Akil. Uh, very happy to be here. So for those who obviously don't know about you, can you share your personal background, uh, your, your past positions, and what was the past ventures up until joining Felix Capital, I believe, up until was October last year? Yeah, 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 exactly. Spot on. I saw, it's, a, it's a slightly uh, non-traditional background, I guess, is how I would, I would frame my, my upbringing. You know, I started out life in uh, Australia, if you can't tell from my, my funny accent, um, but, you know, many years ago. And, and I, uh, my first kind of professional undertaking was as an engineer. Um, I'd always kind of loved, loved science, loved physics and got into that sort of industry and then realized pretty quickly that, uh, you know, being a young, ambitious person as an engineer in Australia is probably not the right career path for me. So I was, uh, I was kind of like lucky that I'd always had this sort of underlying passion as an investor. I'd been investing sort of, you know, 
funnily enough, showing my age, but you know, when I was probably like 15 years old with my dad back in the days when you used to have to uh, open up the newspaper to see the stock prices before, like before you had like Google and all these things. And, and so I kind of like pulled, you know, followed that thread a little bit and, and went into, uh, into investment banking. This was, you know, 10, 10 plus years ago. Um, and, uh, I started out in Sydney and then I moved across to London, always doing sort of like large scale M and A buyout transactions, which in hindsight, I think it was actually pretty good because it gave me some exposure to kind of like the top end of the spectrum, if you know, like the big businesses, multi-billion dollar, you know, enterprises. And then following that, you know, I'd, but I'd always wanted to get into investing and I used that as a platform to go into, to, you know, the, the role which I had at Vitruvian Partners, which is, you know, uh, Europe's kind of like largest uh, growth and tech investor. They got about 10 billion under management. And I was there for, you know, close to four years. And kind of like you said, really just cut my teeth on everything around software and everything around B2B. It's just... Uh, you know, the area that I find the most interesting, I'm really passionate about B2B Weedly. I think it's the data and it's mm-hmm. the engineering part and you put those two together. Uh, and so then that kind of, yeah, took me to Vitruvian Partners where I was there for a while and I actually left um, Vitruvian at, at the start of 2020 to kind of scratch an entrepreneurial itch that I had for a long time. And I, I, I co-founded a business with with my fiance, which is an, an e-commerce business. And she uh, continues to run that really successfully, which is which is great. But then, um, the, so the Felix Capital role came came along probably you know just just around the right time, and I, I ended up going back into um, kind of pulled me back into the world as an investor. Super cool. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm also an engineer. I mean, I started that uh, you know almost ten uh, eight years ago or so when I first started engineering school. But it's funny yeah. how that that kind of shift and way of thinking applies and does really well when you move into SaaS and operations and investment. You can use a lot of the yeah. same thinking. So that's a cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think investing gives you, uh, sorry, engineering gives you such a great like platform. Just teaches you how to solve problems, which is, exactly. I think you can apply that to anything, right? Exactly. And that's, that's all I tell. When people ask me what, what I got on my engineering degree, I mean, just like how to solve problems really well. And I mean, it's very expensive, <laughs> but it's okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's <worth> exactly. it. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, so tell us about a little bit more about Felix Capital. What's your guys' investment thesis? What's the stage of companies you guys are generally investing in? Uh, what's the minimum check size? And are you only looking in, in North America? Yeah, yeah, happy to. So, you know, Phillips Capital, we, we're a thematic fund. And so that gives us, you know, a lot of flexibility versus some other sort of like generalists and other styles of funds. And, you know, really at the core of what we do is we have this idea around sort of like the digital lifestyle or the digital revolution, which is really, you know, our concept of how technology is becoming more pervasive in everyday lives. So whether it's as a consumer using your phone, whether it's the, you know, employee using a piece of software on your laptop, there's all these different iterations, but really it's kind of this core connection between a consumer and technology coming together. Uh, and so, you know, the funny thing with Felix is we're, we're really well known for a sort of like our consumer DNA. You know, we've invested in a lot of brands and platforms. So things like Deliveroo, Peloton, Farfetch, Oatly. And so when people think about Felix, you see all these like logos on the page and it's very easy to think of us kind of like consumer. But really actually a large part of what we invest in is, you know, we call them the tools that power the digital economy and that's everything in B2B land. And it's probably close to about 40% of our portfolio is, is around that sort of that, that, um, that niche. And then I guess coming back to your earlier question around, you know, what we investing in, what stages. So you, that, that beauty of having that sort of that thematic flexibility means we can go early, we can go late. You know, we, we typically mm-hmm. lead Series A investments. That's what we, we really love doing just because it gives us the chance to work closely with our companies and build that relationship. But, you know, we've gone as small as like, you know, 500K, you know, check in a seed round. We've gone all the way up to, you know, like 20 million plus in a, an almost a pre-IPO Series E round. So we kind of really straddle, you know, the whole investment universe. Um, and then kind of like the, the last part of that is, you know, the, the geographic focus. And we're actually a global investor. Again, you know, when we 
you know, set our thesis around being, you know, thematically led. We want to invest in the best businesses, you know, at any stage in any geography. So uh, most of the stuff we do is in Europe, but, you know, mm. about a third is in, in North America and about 10% of what we do is kind of rest of the world. Super cool. So B2B SaaS all over the world, um, you know, no really minimum check size, you know, 500K up to 20 million. Is there a minimum yeah. requirement of what you guys are looking at in terms, let's just say on revenue? Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's like, it's really flexible. You know, it's, it's, I think, you know, when I think about software and I think about like a core series A investment, I tend Mm -hmm. to kind of have this benchmark of around a million in ARR Mm -hmm. just because I kind of, I feel like before you hit a million, you're kind of in that like discovery stage, almost that, you know, you're still trying to find product market fit. You're still not sure on your pricing and and you're, you know, you're different. You probably haven't even nailed your product yet. So I kind of have this like 1 million onwards of ARR, but you know, there's always exceptions, right? Like you can find some amazing businesses, amazing founders who are, you know, still at that early stage that you still want to back for the long term. Make, makes sense. Yeah. And what do you guys might mean by that firm for a creative class? I mean, I know you focused on like the digital lifestyle and how it integrates into your day to day. But what do you mean a creative class? I'm not sure I've heard that before. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting one. I think it kind of ties back to, you know, our, our genesis as, as Felix. And we've always had that sort of like that overlap, like I said, between kind of like consumers and technology. And really, it's interesting. I think, you know, the creative class sits at that intersection a lot of the time. They tend to be, you know, the people who are, you know, the early adopters of technology, the front runners. And, and we really have like these, these sort of different buckets that we think, but, you know, we really love brands. We really love platforms. We really love data. And, you know, when you kind of like all, all those sorts of three things intertwine, tend to, you know, have a nice overlap with the creative class. Mm, makes sense. And what would you say are some other key metrics that you guys are looking at when you guys are looking at SaaS businesses as investors? So revenue, you know, say a million ARR, uh, you're growing, you're looking to grow, you know, raise some capital at this point. What, what else are some key points you guys, you guys like to look at? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's like, it's funny, it's one that we discuss a lot internally, you know, that one of the beauties about software is, you know, once you've kind of got a, an established product, and you have your go to market ready, you know, you can really just like roll out the business and grow methodically, uh, mm-hmm. which is something that, you know, I think is very rare in a lot of other segments. And so SaaS kind of tends to lend itself a lot more strongly to a metrics based approach, you can really actually benchmark businesses, even if they're different verticals, or, you know, horizontal layers, there is a sort of that nice replicability. So, so I do spend quite a lot of my time kind of like looking at SaaS metrics. I think, you know, really the first one that I always think the strongest about is just growth. You know, like what, mm. you know, what is your business growing? What's your top line growth rates? And, and again, you need to kind of like, every business is growing at different levels, but you know, there's a really nice framework. I'm not sure if you've come across it. It's, it's by Battery Ventures. It's the T2 D3 framework. And okay. it's kind of like, it was um, established a while ago and some people say it's a little bit outdated. But it's really at the core, it's kind of like when you hit a million of ARR, your kind of next few years, you should triple for two years and then double for the next three years. And it's funny. So, so essentially you're going from one million in year one, three million in year two, nine million in year, you, you know, year three, it's kind of that. And then you start doubling. And it's really interesting. I've spent a bit of time kind of like benchmarking some of our companies and some of the other ones that we've met. And you tend to see there's, there's a little bit of a correlation to, to you know, some of the best performing companies and that growth curve almost. So uh, there's no, it's no hard and fast rule. That's just kind of something that I find quite interesting to always look at. Um, so that's kind of like one of them. I think there's always other things that you look at around like, you know, the magic numbers and, you know, the rules of 40 that people are always, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff like that's in vogue. Um, and yeah, so we kind of look at all of those things. We look at, I guess, you know, capital efficiency, which is kind of, you know, how much capital has been raised for your level mm-hmm. of ARR. Um, Mm. and there's different rules of thumb there. Sometimes it's, you know, two to one relationship. Sometimes it's a three to one relationship. 
depending on you know if you've got different scale um and then there's you're, always you you're know, talking about specifically about the cac to ltv ratio there or? no no or, so this is no. cap, capital efficiency it's slightly different uh -huh. so it's it's kind of like how much have you spent as a business to get to where you are for your arr base so you're essentially mm -hmm. taking your arr and you're dividing it by your 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 you know, capital spent to date mm -hmm. if that makes sense you know so yeah yeah it's kind of an interesting one to benchmark just to get a sense on you know, how efficient have has the business been? Because, you know, a company could be at one or two million of ARR, but if they spent 20 million mm. to get there, that's probably less interesting than some other businesses. So I think that's always an important one to look at. So two, two to one is probably a good, I mean, three to one would probably be pretty, yeah, two to one is probably a good benchmark, right? Yeah, exactly. Two, two to one since team tends to be pretty good. And three, three to one, I would kind of say is like best in class. You know, if you're around there, then you're doing pretty, pretty freaking mm. good. So is there something that you'd look at and you say, look, this is a red flag and automatic deal breaker that you've typically seen? Like, yeah, that's a good question. I find, um, you know, there's, there's a lot that you need to understand around like the go-to-market and the sales metrics. So, you know, like your paybacks, like you said, you know, your, your CAC LTV and your payback are two really important ones. If those are completely out of whack, then that is a pretty big red flag. Um, and, and I do think, you know, one of those, the key ones that I do spend a lot of time is actually the magic number. So yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with the magic number. It's, it's the one that, which is essentially you take you know, your new revenue for a period and you divide it by your sales and marketing costs for the previous period. So essentially, you know, how much new revenue are you adding for every dollar of sales and marketing? Um, it's kind of a good, another good sort of benchmark just to understand, you know, and the general rule of thumb is, you know, if it's above one, that's probably good. You know, if you add a, add a dollar of revenue for every dollar of sales and marketing, that's a pretty scalable business model, right? Uh, mm. But, you know, it's funny, you'll see some businesses where those those metrics are just completely out of whack. Like they're adding like five or six dollars of sales and marketing to get one dollar of, you know, of revenue. And that for me starts to become a, a bit of a red flag just because I think it can be an indicator that you, you haven't found product market fit or you haven't actually kind of really nailed your go to market as well. You, you're still probably kind of in, in fishing around for for that. Yeah, see what, what's sticking. So that's interesting. So just to clarify, you would take incremental growth of revenue and yeah. then divide that by a period of time over your combined sales and marketing uh, budget. Okay. Exactly. So you expenses. take your previous period. So so like mm -hmm. if normally it's done quarterly, you kind of look at this quarter's mm -hmm. new revenue and last mm -hmm. quarter's sales and marketing. And and I find that a really strong metric. I like that. Cool. So once you guys invest in the company, um, how would you describe the relationship afterwards between you and the founders and how you guys work with them after the investment has been made? Yeah, it's uh, it's funny that one because I think every business is different and every investor is different, right? And personally, like for anyone who gets to know me, I'm a pretty informal, you know, informal guy. Like I kind of like to build like a, a personal relationship with the founders. So you know, I've I've got some founders who have me on WhatsApp and they text me every other day, right? Like you know, just like updates and and the sort of you know sort of people who will go to the pub together and get a drink. But you know, at the same time, there's other companies who who tend to take a lot more of a structured approach. You know, they they'll only you know keep you updated at quarterly board meetings. They'll kind of you know keep you at slightly arm's length. And I, and I think that's kind of one of the, the you know the elements of being a good investor is really kind of working with your founders in the way that's quite symbiotic. You know, you don't want to be Anyway, in my belief, you don't want to be sort of like a really hands-on guy or, or putting a lot of pressure on them if that's not the right situation for that. So uh, I think you know, every good investor should really build, you know, focus on their relationships. Mm, no, that makes sense. So I, I realize you, you joined Felix, you know, slightly later. Was, you weren't there at the early stages, but I'm just kind of curious here. Maybe, you know, you've also worked in investment banking, so maybe you understand this problem. Um, obviously, you need capital to make deals. That's kind of the fuel of the fire. Uh, but you also need deals. You need track records to get that capital. 
you know, it's obviously a chicken and egg problem that you're, you're facing. What would your advice be to maybe some upcoming investors to kind of solve that, that issue? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's a really good one. It's definitely, I think, like, I'm sure a lot of people find it frustrating when you look outside in, you're like, you know, how the hell does this industry make any sense? Because to do deals, you need to have track record to, to mm-hmm. invest money, right? It's kind of slightly counterintuitive. I, I guess, you know, one thing that I think you, like is most helpful is, you know, the public markets, right? Like you can invest in companies in the public market with a dollar, right? And actually that was kind of like one of the things that I did because I've been doing, you know, like I said, public investing since I was like 15 years old. Not that you can build like a, you know, go out and raise money on your public's exposure as a, as a you know, a, a young person, but it really just kind of help, helps you kind of like credentialize yourself a little bit when you get into those discussions. Like when you first say, I want to become an investor and you start talking to people, if you can show you're really passionate about, you know, investing and you've put your own money to work and you can sort of pitch a few stocks and say, you know, like I invested in this company a couple of years ago, I got this sort of return and, you know, it, it's not something that's bulletproof, but it definitely helps you kind of just get you, get your foot in the door a little bit. Right. So I think anybody who, you know, the, the most fortuitous people follow the sort of the very, I guess, traditional linear route into investing, which is, you know, you study finance at university, you get a job in banking, you work for a few years or, or as a consultant, and then you can kind of leverage that to get in. But, you know, I think that's not what the, you know, not the, the norm these days, actually. I think there's a lot of people coming at it from different solutions, people with operating experience, people who've you know, made a startup and they want to get into investing. It's kind of show a passion and, and try and, you know, show some sort of a track record where you can. That's smart. I mean, at the end of the day, they're looking at you like capital allocators. And if you know how to do it at the small, you know, how, what's your decision making framework at looking at small investments? It doesn't matter what it is. And then you can apply that yeah. to you can show, yeah, that makes that makes sense. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, you know, beyond the, the you know, the, the track record and your performance, I think the next step is obviously, you know, trust in this investment industry. I think that's probably one of the most valuable assets that you can build as with the GP, right? You, or as yeah. the GP with your LPs. Um, what do you believe are maybe some of the, maybe let's say three, three main reasons why you can trust someone after the first meeting? Like when you look at, you know, between you and the entrepreneur or, you know, yeah. LPs trusting you as a GP. Yeah. It's also, you're full of good questions today. It's, uh, <laughs> definitely not your first, uh, first podcast, but I think like for me, trust, you know, really in a weird way, it comes down to intuition a little bit. Like I feel like you can, once you meet somebody, especially face to face, you know, it's a little bit harder these days when it's like, you know, removed via zoom, but you can get a kind of a, quite a good sense pretty quickly if someone's genuine, if they're kind of, you know, leading you, leading you on or not. And I think you kind of need to really trust your gut a little bit and, and you know, get a sense of that person. But you know, if you don't have that sort of, you know, that gut reaction, there's always, you know, track record and references, right? Like you can go back to data, you can look at somebody's history, where have they worked? What have they done in the past? Can I talk to people they've worked with and build that sort of, you know, a little bit of a, a view of that individual in their history, right? So you, you've kind of got to lean a little bit on your network as well, I think, or if not yours, you know, people, you know, associated people within your network and you can get references, you can find out, you know, quite a fair bit about, about people and about investors, you know, using those two, two levers. Yeah. it makes perfect sense. Um, so we talk about this as the, the core of the, the message of this podcast. You talk about the six core principles that you like to share with all startup founders. And I found this quite enlightening and quite powerful for our audience. I think it's important for them to understand all those points. Uh, can you just kind of share high level what those six are and maybe a bit of background of each one? Yeah, sure. It's funny you kind of raised this because it's been uh, it's been something in my draft like box for 
months, many months. Like I wrote, started writing it last year and I only just published it, I think it was about a week ago or so. And uh, it's, I'm quite happy to have it out. You know, it's, been, it's something that I've been mulling over for quite a while. But, you know, the genesis of this was really, you know, I had some downtime at the end of last year and I just started thinking about, you know, my history as an investor, all the years that I've spent in this industry and just trying to kind of piece together you know, the similarities that I've seen emerging from, you know, great businesses, great founders, and, and, you know, whatever ways that you can kind of pull those things together and form a coherent view. And it, it wasn't me trying to like create some great source of knowledge or anything. It was funnily enough, uh, you, I started seeing those things and I started seeing a lot of overlaps with all the founders that I talk to day to day. Like often, you know, you have a discussion and a couple hours later, you'll be having the same sort of a discussion around some similar topics. So I thought it was just a nice way of kind of integrating both of those works, you know, different thought pieces into one. And so, you know, to really summarize, I think it's, it's a, <laughs> I think it's a surprisingly long article, which is not what it was supposed to be. But, you know, I can just kind of touch on each of the principles very briefly. But, you know, I think principle one, and, and this is really often one of the most, you know, frequent discussion topics is, you know, how much capital should we raise is, is something that we get asked a lot. And I think, you know, my principle strongly is, you know, only raise what you need as an investor. I think, you know, if you raise more capital than you need, you tend to see inefficient business decisions, right? And and the common, you know, question is, you know, how do I work out how much capital I need? And I again, I propose that, you know, you should be able to form a budget, you know, a one to two year budget at a 10 to 20% buffer, be optimistic with your budget, but, you know, you can use, you know, hard numbers to come up with this level because it's often, you know, it's funny how often you'll see founders going out to raise capital and they'll say, we, we might want five, we might want 10, we're going to, you know, see where it lands. And I think you need to have slightly more of a data and analytical driven approach, right? Mm. Um, so principle number two for me is really just like the concept of laser focus. You know, like I'm a really big believer in focus in any aspect of what you're doing. And I think when it comes to being a startup founder, you really need to just nail your core proposition, right? Like don't try and go out and do 50 things at once. Think about the one core thing that's going to make your business succeed and really, you know, invest a lot of time and resources into doing that. And then once you've got that and you feel comfortable, then go out into the other areas. You know, it's, it's funny how often I'll talk to founders and people and they'll be like, you know, oh, here's, here's the five, 10 things that I'm going to be doing in the next 12 months. I'm going to launch in this market. I'm going to do all these new product features. And it's like, okay, well, you know, why don't you slow down a little bit and let's really see, like, let's dig into this core part of your business because, you know, that's what's going to be the, the success or the failure factor, right? Mm -hmm. Um. I don't, so yeah, moving kind of on to number three and, and, you know, please like interrupt me a kill anytime sure. I, I get worried when I talk too much, but <laughs> <No>. you know, <laughs> yeah, no, principle three for me is the concept around follow your customer. And I think this is also like really core to any business in, in any walk of life. The concept that, you know, your customers are the people who are using your product and they're people, probably the people who are going to have the best indication of, you know, what's working what's not working, where you should be going, you know, always follow your customer. It sounds really kind of like logical, but you know, any strategic decision you, you're going to make should kind of have that in the back of your mind. Like, are my customers asking for this? Is this going to be demand for this? You know, how should we price it? You know, think about your customer, right? Mm -hmm. um, number four on, on this list is uh, a quite, again, an interesting topic, but the idea that, you know, not all investors are created equal. I think, you know, it, it's slightly self-serving here, me kind of like trying to say, you know, why we're different. But, you know, it, yeah, there's, there's a huge number of investors in the market these days and there's really no shortage of capital, you know, for promising SaaS businesses or businesses in general. If you have a strong vision, you have a strong team, you're probably going to be able to go raise money, right? And, and then it becomes down to, you know, who is the best investor for me at this stage in my business, right? And I, I, there's various, you know, elements that I touch on here, but for me, really like the most important ones is like cultural fit, 
You know, mm-hmm. any investor that you pick, you're going to be working with this person for five years, for 10 years, right? You want the person sitting next to you at the table to be like a friend almost, right? You can go to the pub with them. You can get a drink with them. But they also kind of give you the hard truths and realities. So I think that's really number one. And then there's various other ones around like domain knowledge. Obviously, you want your investor to know the market almost as well as you do. You want them to be able to add value. So like help with hiring, help with, you know, operational elements, whatever it is, a network. You know, you really want to get, you know, it's not just money these days from an investor. It's operational, you know, ability to add value is kind of what I say. And then really like my fourth element here is just the concept of share of mind. You know, like we're all busy people. As some investors sit on 10 boards, they sit on 20 boards. You know, as a founder, you really want your investor to get, you know, have share of mind, right? Like if they sit on 20 boards, 10 boards, how are they going to be able to allocate enough time to help you really grow along that journey? So it's just some some of these things, you know, people don't think about them as much, but I think they're really important. So just, just um, so I guess you call it maybe, you know, smarter money versus any money. Um, yeah. How do you kind of validate that, you know, when you're you're trying to filter out and say, look, I, you know, I have a good company here. I want capital. We need to grow. Yeah. So you talk about domain expertise, but then the first part, which is cultural fit. I mean, are you doing the same thing? Are you talking to references? Are you talking to their team? Are you talking to, you know, the board, yeah. the entire board of partners? Or how are you kind of validating that? Yeah, yeah. Also, yeah, great question. I think it, it definitely works both ways, right? Like mm-hmm. any relationship, any, I, I kind of say like investing is like a relationship, you know, it works both ways. Mm-hmm. And, and both sides of the table need to get along. And, and 100% for us, funnily enough, like cultural fit is a huge element of what we do. It, it's kind of like, you need to not just buy into the vision, you need to buy into the team who's going to enact on that vision, right? And, and you need to feel comfortable that, you know, you're giving these people money, right? You know, and, and you need to just understand that they can and believe that they can get there. So for us, cultural fit is really, really important. Cool. cool. Yeah. I'll just wrap up quickly, you know, I feel like sure. I could talk a long time about this, but, you know, principle five for me is really just the concept of, you know, as I say, you know, look in the mirror before you look out the window. It's it's kind of like a funny little analogy or, or vision to have there. But, you know, I think a lot of the time as, as, you know, startup founders, you can get really focused on what your competitors are doing. You can sit there and you can stress a lot about it. You can, you know, spend most of your days looking up, you know, what are their updates? What are they doing? But really, particularly as you're an early stage business you know, you really need to focus on yourself. Like your, your number one priority should be like, how do I make my business the best possible version of that, you know, that dream and that vision. And then what everyone else is doing in the market is kind of like, you know, not relevant, right? Like if you can build an amazing business, everything else will kind of, you know, fall into place. Now, I, I think there's an element that I touch on here is that, you know, there's a bigger risk that you fail, you know, on execution rather than somebody kills you along the way, right? That's kind of like <laughs> this is sort of the premise there. <laughs> Um, and so I think, you know, as a startup founder, you, you need to keep tabs on, on your competition for sure, but you shouldn't just be spending all your time on that. Right. Mm-hmm. And then really like my last, my last principle is just the concept of, you know, believing relentlessly in your vision and, and your business, right? Like I, it's so, it's so funny. Like often when you talk to amazing businesses and amazing founders, they just have this like burning fire in them that they know what they're doing is right. And they quite frankly, don't, you know, don't give a shit what other people are going to tell them, you know, like they believe we're going to get there and and they make it happen. And, and as an investor, that's something that you really want to see as well. You really want to see a founder who just understands what they're doing and they know they're going to get there. Mm, I love it. You know, it's interesting that last point about the vision, how powerful it can be and how your passion can just transpire regardless of sometimes of the product, right? You can see examples of guys like, it was Adam Newman from WeWork, right? I mean, what yeah. got him to that place, right? It was literally just his story, like just selling the, the vision, yeah. even though, you know, how many times has that, that model failed? And, but yeah. he, he still was able to raise billions, right? So exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly it's such a great example, right? Of like just buying into a vision. Like he had 
just like relentless faith. And then everyone else believed in his vision. And then all the investors believed in it. And, you know, <laughs> whatever happened, happened. But it's just a great example, right? Yeah, yeah. That's funny. Cool. So, I mean, I, I love the SaaS space. I mean, that's all we do as well at Horizon Capital. You know, and we've seen, you know, rapid growth in the last few years. And, you know, obviously we've seen uh, some companies even seen a, a bigger benefit during, you know, the pandemic this last year. What would you say, what's your take on the trends of the, the SaaS industry going forward from an investor standpoint? Are you still pretty bullish on it? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting topic. It's something that we debate a lot. And I, I think, you know, COVID has been such an interesting catalyst for change, really. Like we've seen pretty much, you know, I would say five years of, of penetra- penetration growth happen within you know, five months, like realistically, right? So it's really mm. accelerated a lot of the, the underlying themes that are, that are interesting in software and SaaS these days. I think, you know, so you know, long, long answer short, you know, yes, I'm still bullish on software. I, I think, you know, we're still very early in this, like, you know, long, strong, secular growth story of where software is going to go, you know, to, 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 you know, coin the phrase, like, you know, we know, you know, software is eating the world. I think, you know, that's, that's still the case. And I, I think within, you know, areas of software that is interesting, there's various themes. I think a really curious thing is that this concept of globalization in SaaS. I think, you know, if you look back five to 10 years ago, SaaS was very, you know, I'd say concentrated in North America. In terms of you look at the amazing businesses, most of them came out of North America. But really, if you, you know, bring this forward to today, the most curious aspect is that great software businesses are being founded anywhere in the world. You know, you don't need to have to be based in Silicon Valley or get funding from, you know, Andreessen Horowitz to become a great SaaS business these days. You can look at the success cases like, you know, UiPath or Atlassian in Australia or Pipedrive in Estonia. You know, we're seeing amazing founders just, you know, globally distributed, which I think is really exciting. Um, I guess, you know, some other stuff that we're seeing right now, I think there's a really strong movement or, or emergence of sort of like go-to-market you know, methodologies or changing methodologies. I think the common one today is, you know, this concept of product-led growth. I, I think, you know, it's an area that I'm really excited behind. And it's actually something that I'm trying to, you know, find more companies that are doing this to invest in. Because I think, you know, traditionally the software model has been very much, you know, a top-down sales approach, right? It's been like, you know, you hire a sales team, they go into the C-suite, they, you know, develop, a, you know, show an RFP or show a proof of concept or whatever it is. Then they, you know, get approval, they get a budget, then they push it down to the end user, right? And I think that was just a very long sales cycle, a very static process. And, and it's kind of like what software has been historically. But I think one of the most interesting and exciting areas is this concept of product-led growth or, you know, bottom-up sales. You know, find a product that really resonates with the user group, get it into their hands as, with the least amount of friction possible, make it easy for them to use the product and expand it in an organization. And you'll see just like the success cases, right? Like Zoom, I think is such a great one. Slack is another really great one, right? There's all these breakouts that have just happened because of this innovation in, in a go-to-market model. Mm. Is there any industries you you really love right now and uh, would like to maybe invest more in? Yeah, I, I think like I'm really excited still around the whole e-commerce stack. I think there's just, you know, again, it's it's been a really big beneficiary of COVID that, you know, Without retail and without physical retail, the online sales, the online commerce has just been absolutely booming. And I think there's still a lot of innovation in that space, which is going to come through. Um, so that's an area that I'm really, really excited about. I think an area as well is everything, funnily enough, around ERP. It's, it's quite a niche sort of area within software. But I think, you know, it's, it's another sort of sub-segment where we see a lot of really like old legacy solutions which have captured a huge amount of market share. And we're starting to see some really, you know, young and innovative companies trying to address that in new ways, which is really exciting too. Mm. 
Well, so I want uh, kind of last question around this the SaaS space. I know valuations is another big piece that you know founders are always asking. How do you guys currently calculate your valuations for SaaS companies and, that you're generally investing in? Because it's different than us as like a firm coming in and taking a, a different, you know, more of an operational role or growth equity role. Um, and how do you see that changing over the next couple of years as well? Yeah, it's it's funny this one. Like I I think this has been an interesting one for me because I've had that sort of experience working in, you know, big bulge bracket, you know, banking, and then I've moved down into the growth stage where I've seen, you know, the different valuations and now I've moved into the early stage territory. And it's funny, like, I actually think across the spectrum, they're all very similar. You know, we're all doing triangulations of different methods. You know, we're doing multiples. We're looking at public and private transactions. We're doing returns analysis. You know, we're all kind of looking at it from the same lens, the same sort of methodologies. It's just, you know, we have different risk thresholds is really the difference. You know, you look at a growth fund, you look at a big buyout fund, the way that they price deals on a risk basis and, and you know, the cost of capital is, is very different to an, to an early stage fund. So I actually don't think you know, the approach to valuing software is, is going to change. I think more so it's just been, there's been a shift in mentality or a shift in appetite within valuation. So I, I think what we're seeing these days is, you know, high growth, high TAM software businesses. There's just a huge amount of demand for these businesses, right? Like any software business growing 50, 100%, 200%, there's a long queue of investors lining up for that. But funnily enough, when you look at the other side of the spectrum, low growth software businesses are actually trading at fairly reasonable multiples. So I, I was looking the other day, you know, if you, you, you take a, a snapshot of, you know, the public SaaS index, the, you know, the universe that it is, if you get more than 30 or 40% growth, you can get a, an NTM revenue multiple of 40 or 50 times, right? It's absolutely crazy versus, you know, a couple of years ago, it may have been around 10 or you know 20 max. Um, so I, I think we're seeing this really interesting sort of like bifurcation of the market where if you are a high growth SaaS business, the, the you know the upside to the multiples almost uncapped in a weird way you know you've got mm. look at snowflake what are they trading at today like i i'm gonna guess close to 80 90 100 times revenue right so right. It, it's a really interesting paradigm right now in terms of SaaS valuations mm. and, and when when investors are pitching you are they typically or sorry founders are pitching you to, to invest in them are they typically you know setting up their own valuation and, and you're just you know coming in on their round yeah, it's, it depends again on, on, you know, the founder. I think really strong founders who have a really clear vision of what they want to do, they can actually, you know, price the round. They'll say, you know, this is where we're at. This is what we're going to accept. And funny enough, the majority of the time, they'll probably get there or they'll get close to it. So we're seeing that for, you know, really exciting businesses, but then also perhaps less, you know, less experienced founders who don't know what they're doing as much. So they might be a bit more dictated to by an investor. So they'll kind of listen to what we have to say and we can generally work, you know, in a collaborative way to, to find something that works for everybody. Great. Makes sense. Cool. Uh, JP, kind of want to switch gears, kind of more rapid fire questions, a little bit more personal. Um, let's start off. Let's with, do it. Let's do it. All right. What's one piece of advice you wish you had known and would tell your, your 25 year old self? I don't know how old you are right now, but let's use that as a, as a kind of a baseline. Yeah, I'll, I won't tell my age. I feel like I've, you know, got a ba- I've got a baby face, so I get away with it. But uh, no, for my 25-year-old self, I'll say the power of a network. And, and that's never too early to start building your network. I think, you know, in my early days of my career, I focused a lot more on like output and, and I didn't really invest enough in relationships. And I think as you get more mature in an industry, it's actually those connections that really differentiate you. So that would be my advice. Very good. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges, challenges you guys are facing in order to continue to grow your firm and portfolio? Or let's say, what, what keeps you up at night right now? Yeah, it's, I think it's competition, to be honest. Like we said you know, a bit earlier, there's just so much money around in the market. There's so many great investors, so many great you know, VC funds. It's really hard these days, funny enough, to be an investor because 
you know, building your own brand and, and, you know, finding the best deals is just becoming really, really tough. So it's something that I'm always thinking about and always trying to improve on. I agree. Yeah. Building that, that consistent deal flow of good deals. Yeah. So it's a problem in itself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, JP, who, who or what would you say are the best three resources or could be books and or people, mentors, people you follow who you say have been the most instrumental to your success over these last few years? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's great that one. I, I think, you know, I've been really lucky to have a lot of great mentors along the way from early days up until now. And so I, I always encourage people to seek out, you know, find mentors in your space and, and really trying to, you know, leverage that. But I guess in terms of your pure resources, I'm, I'm a huge fan of podcasts, if you can't tell, you know, <laughs> doing this one. But, you know, for me, there's two great ones. I think Reid Hoffman, you know, with Masters of Scale, I think that's an absolute must listen. I think Harris Stebbings 20 Minute VC is also really great. Uh, and then when it comes to, you know, books, I think an, or a great read for anybody is Thinking Fast and Slow by, you know, Daniel Kahneman. I think that's probably one of my favorite books. Yeah, that's an awesome book. Um, JP, you've had some, some great success, but what does success mean to you today? Whether it could be personally, financially, you know, business, life, there's, there's no right answer. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a funny question. I, I think like... <laughs> I think my views have really evolved on this as I've gotten older, you know, like I think mm. when I was younger, success for me was very much like financially motivated. Like I had dollars in my mind, you know, I want to get to this level at this point in my life. And I, I think, you know, I've gotten a little bit older and hopefully slightly wiser these days. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's really shifted more to being, you know, having a balanced outlook and having a balanced life, right? Like I love my job and I'm really fortunate to have that, but also, you know, it's important for me to spend time doing the things that I enjoy, you know, with my friends, with my family, you know, whether it's cooking, going to the gym, whatever it is. For me, success is kind of having that sort of security to be able to balance all of those elements. Love it. Yeah, the balance is, the balance is key. Um, yeah. Sweet. JP, where, where can our audience or our founders get in touch with you to learn more about you? And how should they maybe prepare if they want to maybe pitch their companies to you? Yeah, I, I think, you know, again, I'm super informal. So please, you know, feel free to reach out to me wherever, you know, my, my email address is joseph at felixcap.com, you know, send me anything and everything. I, I always try and make time for, for founders, irrespective of stage. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't say you need to prepare a pitch deck to talk to me. You know, if you have a great idea and you, you want to talk, you know, please reach out. Okay, awesome. We'll add that email to the show notes, guys. If you guys are interested, hit up JP and uh, he'll, he'll give you uh, some some tips for, for getting capital. Uh, thank you so much. This has been great. I really appreciate you jumping on today, JP. No, it was, it's a pleasure, Akil. Thank you so much for having me. Cheers. Thank you all for listening in to this episode and joining SaaS District today. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at horizoncapital.com. And myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please DM us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Horizon Capital and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and hope to see you on the next one.